0: Well, it's so good to be uh, in this pulpit, and I don't, I don't mean this piece of wood, I mean uh, the opportunity to preach to you for the first time as your pastor. Uh, my heart is full, not just with excitement, but honestly with love, love for you and love for the Word of God, which really is the best thing that I have to offer you. This is what we're going to do every single week. Uh, at RCBC. It's, it's not fancy. Uh, the, the goal is not to stand up here and to give you the most state-of-the-art production you've ever seen. We want to, of course, care about excellence, but the goal is not to wow. The goal is not to put on a show. The goal is not to proclaim. The goal is to unleash the Word of God and let it speak for itself, because that's how spiritual life and spiritual growth is going to occur not through spiritual entertainment, but through the preaching and the hearing and the embracing and the treasuring and the obeying of the word of God. This morning, we're starting a series through the gospel according to Mark. And to help get your bearings, um, I want to give you a few important details about the context. A few important things to know about the gospel according to Mark. I'll, I'll, I'll be giving you a few of these probably in the introductions to the, 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 these first few sermons, but um, a couple that you need to know kind of right from the outset. First of all, the author. Spoiler alert, is Mark. Uh, he's known in the book of Acts as John Mark. Uh, his mother actually was probably a, a woman of means. Uh, if you look in Acts 12, the church uh, was meeting in her house. Um, what's interesting though, is that Mark, even though he wrote one of these one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark was not one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, but he was a very close ministry associate. With Peter, who was not only one of the twelve disciples, but was part of Jesus's inner circle of three, and so Peter is Mark's primary source. There's a very real sense in which the Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. Another thing is to know is is the date. So this uh, this book, this gospel, was written uh, midway through the first century A.D. So. Fit in the 50s AD, which makes it the earliest, the first of the four gospels. That's significant. Speaking of which, if, if you're skeptical about the Bible, skeptical about Christianity and how seriously Christians seem to take uh, every sentence in this ancient book, I want to first of all just say, we are so glad you're here. Your, uh, you know, your, your GPS or your Apple Maps didn't take you to the wrong place. This is exactly where we want you to be. We're, we're so glad you're with us and we would love to chat with you about your questions and your objections. This is a place that is, that is open and welcome to doubters and skeptics and strugglers and those who haven't gotten all their questions answered. At the end of the service, I'm going to be standing. Um, this is only my, my first time doing this, so I haven't decided which door yet, but I'm going to be standing at, at one of those doors, and I would love, um, if you're a skeptic, I would love to talk with you about Christianity and about the Bible. And the reason I mention this at the very outset of this sermon is that Mark Being the earliest of the four gospels written in the 50s AD, that means that this book, whatever you believe about its contents, it was written too early. It was written too close to the events described in order for legends to have had time to develop. I mean, maybe that's kind of your perspective on the Bible, your perspective on the the four Gospels is is that uh, you know there there may be some grains of historical truth in them, but there's also a lot of legend, which was developed uh, in order to perhaps serve some political purpose or to even squash competing narratives about Jesus. But I want to submit to you, friend, that the Gospel according to Mark was written and was circulating publicly way too close the events described for those legendary elements to have been able to creep in. As we'll see in this series, there. and this is something I want you to keep, keep your eyes open for because I'm actually not even going to flag it every time we see it. I want you to notice how often Mark gets randomly granular, randomly specific in certain details that we don't really need to know. I mean, details about political context or geographical location or names. I'll just give you one example. In chapter 15, when Jesus is heading toward the uh, Golgotha and Simon of Cyrene is tapped to carry the cross of Jesus, Mark, just in passing, feels like adding, oh, yeah, Simon, the father of Rufus and Alexander. Thanks, Mark. Rufus and Alexander don't show up anywhere else in the Bible. That is a seemingly needless detail, but Mark gives it to us because he's saying, in essence, if you don't believe me, ask them. Check my sources. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to litter this gospel with, with specific historical facts so that you don't have to take my word for it. You can go ask the eyewitnesses themselves, many of whom are still living. Of course, Mark has a theological agenda. No one can possibly do completely neutral historical reporting. We, we all bring a bias to the table. And yet, just because Mark has a theological agenda does not mean he's not reporting history. So don't dismiss this, friend, just as a collection of legends. This is the reporting of history. And the, other, the, the last thing I want to mention to you, just kind of by way of introduction, is that Mark is unique among the four Gospels, not only because it's the earliest, but also because it's the shortest. In just 16 chapters, it is by far the most action packed and fast paced. If, if any of the Gospels could be called a page turner, it's this one. And it's also different because it doesn't have a lot of speeches, there, there's no Sermon on the Mount in Mark, it, it doesn't even have a lot of parables. Mark is focused on recounting mainly the miracles of Jesus so that we on page after page are confronted over and over again with this unique man who's appeared on the scene in the first century in Israel. All right. There's a lot more I could say uh, that's interesting about Mark, but I'll, I'll save it for future sermons. I'll just leave you with that. Author, date, and, um, and, and length length and purpose earlier candy read our sermon passage which is printed there in your bulletin Um, there are not individual verse numbers printed though so if you do have a bible this would be a great time to turn to mark chapter one mark chapter one this is the new testament the second book of the new testament and in light of those eight verses that we heard read just a few minutes ago I think there are three basic uh, points that arise out of this passage that I want to think about with you in turn this morning. Three points from Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. First, the headline, that's verse 1. Second, the herald, that's verses 2 to 6. And third, and it'd be really lame if on my very first Sunday preaching, I didn't have an H word here. All right, I do have an H word, the hero. And it's not, it's not even a stretch. This, I think, is, is an outline that arises out of this passage. The headline, verse 1, the herald, verses 2 to 6, and the hero, verses 7 and 8. I do not promise you alliteration every week, uh, but you're welcome. Uh, the headline, the herald, and the hero. All right, first, the headline. It was the best of times... It was the worst of times. A long lo- a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Whether it's a novel like A Tale of Two Cities or a film like Star Wars or a speech, a monumental speech like the Gettysburg Address, They, these opening statements, we know this intuitively opening statements matter. They set the trajectory for everything that follows. And Mark's gospel is a prime example of this tactic. He begins where he means to go. He wants to fix our eyes from the very first words on what will become the most important thing. And so he scribbles on a banner, as it were, that will fly over all 16 chapters of this gospel. The words, verse one, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Interestingly, this is the only assertion from Mark himself in the whole book. This is, from now on, we'll hear from others what the Pharisees thought of Jesus, what the disciples thought of Jesus, what the demons thought of Jesus, what Jesus thought of himself. But here, at the very beginning, is what Mark, the author, thought of Jesus. And this is what the whole book will be about. And the lesson for us as we study it over the next many months. The challenge for us is to never forget chapter 1, verse 1. Everything we read, if we're going to read it rightly, must be interpreted and applied in light of this towering headline. Or to put it another way, to change the metaphor, these words in verse 1 ought to function like background music, a kind of soundtrack for reading the whole book. But not only will this opening verse fly like a banner and hum like background music, it is functioning here at the very beginning like a resume, introducing us to the main character. Mark, as I said earlier, he's a historical reporter and he has not buried his lead. Before he tells us anything else, he wants us to know that his central character that we are going to encounter in the pages of his gospel is not an ordinary individual. He is in a class by himself. And so Mark, here in verse 1, ticks off not nicknames, but claims, titles for his main character. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. That is, Israel's long-awaited king, and he is also the son, that is, the eternal second person of the trinity, the God-man, truly human, truly divine, who has invaded history and launched a revolution. In fact, there aren't only two titles here, but three, because the name Jesus is also a claim. The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, means God is salvation, God saves. So Mark is saying from the very outset, hey, meet the Son of God who has come as the King of Israel and Savior of the world. And this whole biography he's writing, he tells us, is going to be gospel, good news, which means... That it's not a lot of other things. I mean, we don't have to guess what Mark is up to. He tells us this is good news, the good news, which means that the Bible, and in particular the gospel according to Mark, is not just a collection of wise sayings. You, you insult the ancient author if you dismiss it as merely a collection of wise sayings or an interesting piece of ancient religious guidance. Mark has no patience for that. He leaves no room for that. He says, no, the genre of what I'm doing is not up for debate. This is reportage. This is news. And he says the news is good. It's, it's not merely groundbreaking historical reporting, but he says that the news is good which implies that there was something not good. There was something bad that had to be dealt with. And because the bad news, because the bad news didn't just exist out there among the pagan nations, but in here, uh, wreaking havoc in God's people's, own hearts, those who bore his name, because sin had left all this rubble and wreckage among God's own people, they were not prepared for his coming. Point two, the herald. The herald. The first thing Mark does after giving us this banner headline in verse one is that he quotes a source. In other words, he's saying, I'm not making this up. This good news about the Messiah is not a brand new idea. It's not like Zuckerberg's metaverse or Al Gore's internet. Uh, it's not, that was supposed to be a joke. It's my first joke ever from this pulpit and it totally failed. Um, all right, let's close in prayer. No, I'm just this good news, Mark is saying, is the fruition of, the fruition of centuries of pent-up longing and hope. And to prove this, that God's gospel plan doesn't start here, Mark rewinds the clock to quote two of the most respected sources in Israelite history. Now, if you look in your Bible, it looks like he's just quoting one. It looks like he's just quoting one. Well, don't be scandalized by that. Mark is quoting two. He's quoting both Malachi and Isaiah. But for the sake of shorthand, he summarizes it under the heading of the one who is far more prominent among the prophets. So he, he attributes the combined quote to Isaiah, even though verse two actually comes from Malachi. Malachi chapter three, over 400 years before Jesus, God says, you don't have to turn there, but God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. So Malachi 400 years earlier was forecasting that the Messiah, when he comes, will be trailing in the footsteps of a forerunner. And then in verse 3, we get the quote from Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Verses two and three are like, a, are like a Mark's double-edged sword because with Malachi in the original context, verse two, when he quotes Malachi, that was an oracle actually of judgment. But with Isaiah, it was an oracle of judgment salvation. And this is significant because though the picture is still fuzzy for us in the first verse, first three verses, Mark wants us to see, even here, the faint lines of two great themes that are going to converge in one man. Two great themes that are going to converge in this Messiah, as he experiences judgment, and through it brings salvation. Well, now we come to the big reveal, okay? my uh, Mark is kind of done with the throat clearing. This is, this is who he's about to tell us who it is that is fulfilling these ancient po- prophecies by preparing the way for the coming king verse 4 and so john the baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the whole judean countryside and all the people of jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the jordan river john wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey now to us, this seems super strange, all right? This, you, you got this wilderness dude, he's eccentric, got the crazy look in his eye, uh, and he's wearing weird stuff, he's eating weird stuff. But to the Jews flocking to see him, none of these details would have been lost on them. John is deliberately embodying the role of someone else. Uh, the, the, he, is, he is embodying the second coming of the Old Testament prophet, Elijah. In other words, he's stepping into expectation that had existed for four, over 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. Don't, don't just take my word for it. I want to show you what I'm talking about. You can keep your finger in Mark, but go ahead and turn uh, two books to the left, to the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi, last book and last chapter. Malachi chapter 4. This is how your Old Testament ends. Have you ever considered that? This is how your Old Testament ends. Malachi 4. Look there, starting in verse 5. The Lord says, see how I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And this is exactly what the New Testament quotes. Malachi chapter 4 is exactly what the New Testament quotes in reference to John. In Luke chapter 1, go ahead and turn there, uh, just because it's it's close. So uh, Luke would be what? Three books to the right? Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1. This is going to put you in the Christmas spirit. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are told by an angel that, that uh, they're going to have a son, even though they're aging and barren, and God is going to perform a miracle in Elizabeth's womb. They're going to have a son. They're to name him John. And the angel says in Luke 1, 16, that their son, John, will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of who? Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, that's the quote from Malachi 4, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, the people, God's people, Israel, they had to be prepared because the soil of their hearts had grown so hard, and hard hearts will never receive God's truth. And so there had to be spiritual groundwork laid in order to soften the soil and that was John's role that was John's role to prepare the way to soften the soil for the coming king so back to mark 1 verse 4 john the baptist appeared in the wilderness as we've just seen he's he's functioning as a new elijah and what is he doing preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This guy had one sermon, and it was, Israel, repent. Turn away from your rebellion. Come get plunged in the water that will symbolize the cleansing that you most deeply need. And if you do this, if you turn back to the Lord, if you come back, this is what we read in our uh, call to worship earlier from Isaiah chapter 55. If you return to the Lord, he will have mercy. He will abundantly pardon you. That was John's message. And so verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this is why he's known to us as John the Baptist, uh, the, the baptizer. Baptism is actually mentioned four times in just these eight verses. And the version of it, the version of baptism that John was performing served, I hope you've seen, a a very important temporary purpose. But it wasn't the exact same thing as Christian baptism. I mean, John wasn't baptizing people into church membership in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But tonight, as I said earlier, we have the privilege of doing just that in our evening service with four of you, Christian baptism. But there are some similarities, even though there are obvious differences, there are some similarities between what John was doing 2,000 years ago and what we will be doing at 5 p.m. tonight. John's baptisms were public. So is Christian baptism. John's baptisms required a step of obedience in the confession of sin. So does Christian baptism. John's baptisms were symbolic, not magic. So is Christian baptism. All four people getting baptized this evening, and by the way, if I didn't say this when I gave the announcements earlier, you are all welcome to come, whether you're a member of the church or not, to our evening service at Emmanuel Baptist. But all four people getting baptized this evening have already turned from their sin and are trusting Christ for salvation. It's not that they're expecting this ordinance, this religious ritual tonight to microwave them, you know, to zap them into godliness all of a sudden, or to miraculously save them. No, it's an outward public symbol of an inward reality. Before we move on to the third point, there's something we we just dare not miss here. In light of this story, we dare not miss that it is not enough to just undergo a religious ritual. These baptisms, as I just said, were not spiritual Magic. In order to have real meaning, they had to be tethered to real repentance, verse 4, and real confession, verse 5. Religious rituals and activities matter. They, they actually do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be gathering as a church and we wouldn't be... Uh, Praying prayers of confession and singing songs and and doing all of this stuff. And yet, they're not magic. God sees the condition of the soil in your heart. He sees this morning whether that soil in your heart is hardened by pride. Or whether it's soft. Soft to the things of the Lord. To receiving The sunshine and the water of his word. Beware of banking on some kind of religious activity to make God happy with you or to keep God happy with you. His vision is too good for that. He sees straight through to the heart and he cares about the condition of the soil. And speaking of confession, which we see there in, in verse 5, and which is obviously tied to repentance, verse 4, c- confession is not something you just do once in order to get saved. Like you confess your sins and then you step into the kingdom and oh, I'm there. No, it, and it's also not something where you go to a human priest and uh, you know, you've really blown it and you go and confess to the priest and he gives you some prayers to pray. No, confession is a constant ongoing feature of the Christian life. The best Christians are not the squeaky clean. The best Christians are the best confessors. The best Christians are the best repenters. Friends, Christianity, and I don't know where you're coming from, what your experience is, how you've seen Christianity practiced. but despite what you may have seen, Christianity is not about keeping up appearances. God is not interested in your smiley, shiny pretense. He sees the soil. He sees and knows whether you desire him or just the things he can offer you. He sees, he knows whether you're more bothered and scandalized by your own sins or by those of your political opponents. He sees and knows whether you're more eager to confess your own sins or to confess the sins of others. He sees it all, but but here's the thing. What I just said might sound ominous. You might think, oh, here's the ominous part of the sermon, right? Well, actually, it's not. It's not ominous if you've given your heart to him. What I just said is only bad news if you have not given your heart to him. Otherwise, it's good news because the God of the universe just happens, the God I just described who sees all and knows all, he just happens to love those who have made a wreck of their lives. He just happens to passionately love those who have a lot of sin to confess oh, I don't want RCBC, this church, to be a place where we feel like we have to keep up appearances, that we have to be smiley and shiny in order to be fit to come. Because if we're doing this right, we will remember that the God we celebrate is not drawn to the pristine and the put together. On the contrary, he's drawn to the morally bankrupt, to those who know their credit is shot, who know that every transaction is getting declined and sin has plunged them into foreclosure, and they have nothing to offer except faith in Jesus that if they throw themselves on him for mercy he will catch them and never let go and if we're doing this right here at RCBC we won't try to do this confession thing alone in our church covenant we promise to corporately together quote resist the temptation to hide our struggles in sins. That's my default tendency. That's why I need a strong action verb like resist because I'm not going to drift into transparency. I'm not going to drift into humility. I'm not going to drift into confession. I need to resolve. I need to resist the temptation to cower and hide. And how does that line of our church covenant ends end? We will resist the temptation to hide our struggles and sins. Why? So that we might experience the grace of God in the care of his saints. Confession is not just a vertical obligation. It is a horizontal opportunity. Let's not play act at RCBC like I'm tempted to do, like the Israelites of of, uh, John's day were tempted to do and were doing. Let's be a church that is continually struggling and repenting, struggling and repenting together. Number three, the hero. Verse seven, and this was John's message. After me, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark has begun his gospel by thrusting, not Jesus, but John into the foreground. All right? Verse one tells, tells us who's going to be the main character for the next 16 chapters. But for these first eight verses, John the Baptist is in the foreground. And yet the verses about him that we just looked at, verses two to six, track with me here, okay? Because this, this, is, this is important about the way John has structured things. Verses two to six, which are about John the Baptist, are framed, they're bookended, By verse 1 and verses 7 and 8, which are not about John the Baptist. In other words, the whole passage is shouting that the one in the foreground temporarily has come to get out of the way. The one in the foreground has come to prepare the way and also ultimately to give way to Jesus the King. And here's what I can't get over. John loves this. John doesn't feel upstaged. John is thrilled. He's glad to bow out of the foreground. He can't wait, as it were, to read the rest of Mark's gospel when he is not the main character, the main event. He's saying, I'm like a candle in the dark hours of the morning. Serves a purpose, an important temporary purpose, but that candle is about to give way to the rising sun. As he puts it in the gospel according to John, I know these names can get confusing, as John the Baptist puts it in the gospel of John, which is a different John. That's one of Jesus' disciples. But he says, I must decrease. He must increase. It's pretty amazing humility, isn't it, on John's part. You you know John was Jesus' cousin? We looked earlier at Luke 1, right? Right? And, and and the, the, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you remember Elizabeth going to Mary. John and Jesus grew up together. He was around Jesus for 30 years. 30 years. And yet, there had not developed in his heart over the course of three decades any sense of jealousy, any sense of, resentment or bitterness, or why, why does he get to play that part and not me? There's just gladness that he gets to play any role at all. And there's a clear and obvious application for us here, isn't there? The application is not simply glorify God with your life, though that's true. The application is trust God with your role. Work to embrace the station in life in which God has deployed you and to be content and even happy in it. In the famous verse about contentment in Philippians 4, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Don't fly past that verb. He had to learn it. He had to go to school to become content because contentment is one of those other things you're not just going to drift into. See, John knew who he was and who he wasn't. He, he didn't try to be both messenger and Messiah, all things to all people. He just embraced one specific role for the sake of the king. Now, some, some of you may be thinking, okay, I, I see kind of where this application is going, but come on, preacher. Uh, don't you realize that j- the spiritual value of John's role was really obvious? I'm not so sure about the spiritual value of mine. But beloved, lift your eyes. This coming week, just this coming week, there will be dozens of ways that you can bring pleasure to God's heart and honor God's name as you seek to make him look good in the world. In your workplace, you can pray, Lord, shine through me so that I decrease and you increase. Give me strength to work with excellence in this job. Give me humility to not always have to get ahead and always have to get my way. Give me integrity so I'm not tempted to cut corners in order to advance myself. Give me courage to seize and even to create opportunities to tell that coworker, that neighbor, about the best news they're ever going to hear. Oh Lord, help me to stop waiting for the perfect opportunity, the perfect scenario, and help me to make the most of the one you've given me. Oh Lord, help me to background myself and to foreground Jesus this week. And this applies not just if if you work uh, in an office, this applies if you're a student not just a college student in churches. When we say student, people assume we either mean college students or high schoolers, but this goes for you if you're here and you're listening and you're, and you're in elementary school. This applies to you. This applies to you if you're a young mom in a chaotic house. If you're a, 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 an empty nester in an empty house, you this week will have an opportunity. You This week, have an opportunity to re-embrace the station God has given you. As the old British pastor Charles Spurgeon observed, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. How amazing is it that we get to play any role at all? And did you notice, this is almost humorous, John feels underqualified in verse seven, underqualified to even stoop down and serve Jesus. That's how big and majestic and glorious Jesus was in his eyes. What about in yours? Do do you feel underqualified to even get to be associated with him? to be given a task, any task? Do you feel underqualified to get to serve in the church nursery? You should. We are underqualified to stoop and serve him in the most mundane and menial of ways. That is how big and glorious he is. Verse eight, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're going to think more about the Holy Spirit next week when we look at the baptism of Jesus. But the important thing to understand here is that John is drawing a contrast between what he has come to do and what Jesus is coming to do. John is baptizing the body with water, but Jesus is coming to baptize the heart with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not, not referring to some kind of second baptism that only really mature Christians can expect to experience. It's not like water baptism is for JV Christians and then Holy Spirit baptism is for the varsity. No, water baptism symbolizes the inward reality, the miracle that the eternal third person of the Trinity has moved in and taken up residence in the heart of any sinner who simply puts their trust in Jesus. So what does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? I want to be a spirit-filled church. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? I want to be a spirit-filled Christian. It doesn't mean that you or we have attained to some higher plane, higher stage in the Christian life. It actually means something far simpler and richer than that. Isn't it interesting? And I I think there's a clue actually in the structure of the passage about what it means to be spirit-filled. Isn't it interesting that Mark begins by talking about Jesus in verse 1 and then he moves on to talking about John and the Spirit. Jesus is on the banner, and what's hanging off the banner are John and the Spirit, because John and the Spirit have this in common. They exist to turn the spotlight on the sun, and beloved, that is our privilege as well. I want rcbc as i just said to be a spirit-filled church but the mark of a spirit-filled church is not that we've attained the uh, uh, kind of second blessing or second stage of grace but it's that we are fixated like john and like the spirit on the gospel of jesus christ the mark of a spirit-filled christian is that you are centered on christ the mark of a spirit-filled church is that you can't get enough of Christ. May God make that true of us. And speaking of verse 1, as I conclude, remember those first three words? The beginning, in the beginning, perhaps. That reminds you of the first words of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Or perhaps it reminds you of the very first words in all the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark is telling us that Jesus is on the scene to bring a new beginning, a whole new way of being in the world. And remember how we quoted Isaiah? Well, guess what? Isaiah was promising. Not only a new creation, but also a new exodus. Not just from slavery in Egypt or an exodus from exile in Assyria, which is the context when Isaiah was writing, but ultimately a greater exodus out of sin and death itself. And the good news, Mark wants us to know, is that the promised future deliverer, the one who will accomplish that ultimate exodus, the true and better Moses is here and he's going to lead his people out. Welcome to the gospel according to Mark. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the, the focus of this passage of course is on John, but the hero is Jesus. We pray that you would help us to maximize his visibility in Richmond this week. Holy Spirit, fill us so that we might shine with the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's in his, his, and it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.